This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today I'm talking with Dr. Renoko Rashidi. Dr. Renoko Rashidi is an anthropologist and historian with a major focus on what he calls the global African presence. That is, Africans outside of Africa before and after enslavement. As a traveler and researcher, Dr. Rashidi has visited 103 countries and counting. As a lecturer and presenter, he has spoken in 57 countries and counting. Renoko has worked with and under some of the most distinguished scholars of our generation, including Ivan Van Sertema, John Hendrick Clark, Asa Hilliard, Edward Scobie, John G. Jackson, Jan Carew, and Yosef Ben Yakinen. As a tour leader, he has spoken he has taken groups to India, Australia, Fiji, Turkey, Jordan, Brazil, Egypt, the Netherlands, Spain, Morocco, Vietnam, Cambodia, and many, many more. He is the author or editor of 18 books, and we are going to talk about one of those entitled Black Star, the African Presence in Early Europe. Dr. Renoko Rashidi, welcome to Books, Peace, and Beyond. Well, thank you very much. I have to um, update that bio. Um, <laughs> That was a couple of years ago. I've been to 118 countries now and oh. lectured in 60. And I've just had two new books come out. I have my first book for children on the African diaspora and also a, a large semi-autobiographical travel book. It just came out last month. So oh, awesome. nevertheless, I'm very, very, very pleased to be able to do the interview. Well, we would definitely get you on to, and, uh, and talk about those other books as well. Those would be very, those would be very interesting to talk about. Um, so, b- before we get into the uh, the book Black Star: The African Presence in Early Europe, I just wanted to know, you know, outside of the distinguished scholars that you've worked with, what or who influenced you to pursue this extraordinary work you do? Is it someone, family member, so forth? Like, who really sparked it off for you? Well, there were three or four major events. I'm 62 years old. I grew up in what we now call South Central Los Angeles. And um, when I was in middle school, I took a class in the ninth grade on Negro history. That's what it was called at that time. And this was a, a pioneering course. And so I was very much influenced by that. The teacher, Mr. Bowie, would bring these albums and play them, and he'd bring Um, particularly the speeches of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X would say, in Message to the Grassroots, of all our studies, it is history that is most qualified to reward our research. So that was an important first step right there. And then there was the work of Chancellor Williams. When I was 18, um, I read the book Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams, and that was really the big push, you know, because here's a book, where man talked about an ancient African dispersal or diaspora, black people leaving Africa tens of thousands of years before slavery. And I knew then that I wanted to be a historian. So I would say that those were the two major turning points in terms of shaping and molding me and wanting to be not only a historian, but a historian with the focus on history that I currently have. Yeah. That's incredible. So, uh, Black Star, African Presence in Early Europe, why did you write this book? Well, I've written so much over the years. This was the first book that I had published by the publishing house Books of Africa. And I think I just kind of wanted to, I had all this information, including a lot of information on Africans in Europe. Very few people were doing anything uh, on that subject, at least to my satisfaction. And so I just decided to compile it all, to add a few new pieces. I got uh, front matter by the man I consider the leading African historian in the UK, Robin Walker, 
and a brother, a scholar who has really had a, a big influence, somebody that I was, I'm very impressed with in the United States, and that's Charles Finch. I added some new photographs, and away we went. I just think that we need all the information we can get on as many different aspects of our history as we can get, and especially aspects that don't deal with enslavement. I don't ever want to minimize the suffering of our ancestors, but our history didn't begin with slavery, and it's not confined to the United States. African Americans, as you know, are not the only black people in the world, and I think we need to cover the whole uh, spectrum. And I think that's what I love about you is that when you do focus on uh, people, Africans of the diaspora, it's not just focusing, highlighting them as in other people's armies and so forth. It's like showing that they are the foundation and a big contribution to the world that we know of now. I um, just want to say that that's that's what I really take from your work, and I truly appreciate that. So, um, well, thank you very much. So you start the book by enlightening us on the African underpinnings of early Europe by telling us about the African presence and contributions to Crete, Greece, Cochise, and Rome. Why do you start there? Because we wanted to start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Actually, if we look at the book carefully, we can see that we even go back into what we might call prehistoric Europe. But certainly uh, the major part of the book opens up with um, the African background, we might say, to classical European antiquity. That's a term that we can use. And Crete is important to us because it represents what is considered the first great civilization in Europe. Although Crete itself is not actually in Europe per se, it's really um, in the Aegean Sea, which is midway between Europe and Africa. But it's considered the first civilization in Europe, and of course we can see African elements there. So it all goes back to the theme that we return to again and again and again, that our history begins at the beginning, and that African history is everybody's history. So it was natural for me to start at that point. Yeah, and I like how you talked about how Greek philosophy really isn't Greek. Can you explain that? Well, that's really the thinking of um, one of the people that we highlight in the book, and that's George George uh, Granville Mona James, or George G.M. James. And, of course, in the mid-1950s, he produced this classic work, um, Stolen Legacy, and that was his mentality. You see, there's something else we should talk about in terms of this book <clears throat> and all my books. I always go to great lengths, and I think justifiably so, to talk about the scholars, to talk about the people who came before me, the people who came before us. And so this work is not new for me at all, and many people and not just Africans, have been talking about this for a long time. And so we point those, we point that out. We talk, I believe, a little about um, George M. James, but I think we also talk about uh, William Leo uh, Hansberry. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about people like John Jackson, et cetera. But, it, of course, to answer your question and to be very direct, it was James' belief, it was his thesis, that in the late dynasties of Kemet, of Egypt, Greeks, Greek scholars, Greek travelers, Greek historians, etc., mathematicians like Pythagoras, came to Egypt to drink at the fountain of African knowledge. And, of course, Greek philosophy has to be influenced in fundamental ways by that interaction that they had with Egypt, that the interaction, the interaction that they had with Africa. Yeah, I, I and like you said, I, I think it's incredible how you pay homage to other scholars who've also presented this work. So as we are reading your book and learning about this stuff, you show us places how we can dive in deeper, which I think is very important to us continuing to pass on this knowledge uh, uh, into the future. We didn't earn the right to fly to be 
been running, beating, tucked down, cause I skin. I shine, shine right through the hate. I'm a king, she a queen, they all know we're great. I know you a fan, who you want my style? Can you rock a paint chain? Can you rock my songs? I know they're afraid, cause I'm educated. Yeah, yeah, you're looking at greatness. I'm Melanie Mac. No, 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 that ain't a tame. something that i think will uh, people may not be aware of is that some theologians and saints and popes of early christianity were of african descent um and you know and sometimes in the community you get a lot of flack for some people might say why are we following christianity that that really isn't our religion well if you <laughs> if you look at the underpinnings it, it's it's pretty deep it's a lot of influence by us i was wondering if you can elaborate on that well, <clears throat> you and I and your beautiful wife, and along with numerous others, were together in Ethiopia a couple years ago. Yes. And we saw that Ethiopia is the or one of the oldest Christian nations in the world. And so Africa is the basis of so many things. It's the birthplace of so many things. It's where so much of what we know in the world was uh, where it evolved and where it was refined. And certainly Christianity is no exception to that. So we have <clears throat> this ancient African nation, Ethiopia. But Ethiopia was also big in Egypt. You have, for example, Coptic Christianity. And, of course, you have many African personalities that are very important in what we might call the early Christian world. You mentioned the popes. There are at least three of them, at least three that we know of for sure of African heritage. One is St. Victor I, who is largely responsible for Easter being celebrated on Sunday every year. Up to that point, it was a kind of a floating holiday. And then you have St. Miltiades, and then you have St. Galatius. So you have three African popes, but you have Africans who feature in other early aspects of Christianity. For example, many of the early martyrs the people who were thrown to the wild animals in the various coliseums of the Roman world, a lot of them were African. The most famous are Perpetua and Felicity. And these were two young African women who were killed by wild animals in a Roman coliseum, but who managed, even until the end, to keep their dignity. You have African saints, African saints like St. Cyprian, like St. Tertullian, St. Anthony, St. Origen, and the most famous of them all, St. Augustine. And so these are little-known chapters or aspects of the African presence in one of the world's, I'll say it, great religions. And we need to know that. So if you're going to reject Christianity, which is your perfect right to do, at least have the information to go with it so you're making an intelligent decision. And it's not just based on the fact that Christianity in modern times, beginning with the transatlantic slave trade, has also been used to exploit black people. So we want the whole picture. And so the question you raise is a very important one. Yes, and you do a great job of <laughs> really fleshing it out and showing that, hey, 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 you, you're just what they're showing you is just a tunnel vision view. Let's expand that to understand how important our contributions were to that. And I think something else that was pretty interesting is when we think about Rome, we don't think about Africans or, or, or people of African descent in Rome. 
we don't really think about that. If we do, we might think about them fighting in the Coliseum, like on the movies or whatever. But we, there were actually emperors of Rome that were of African descent. <laughs> um, uh, if you if you can just talk about that just a little. Oh, I'd be happy to. You have <clears throat> in one ninety three the establishment of an African dynasty. This is the height of Imperial Rome. In 146, in fact, in April 146, you have a man named Septimius Severus who was born in Leptis Magna, Libya, in April 146. I think I can even tie down the date. I believe it's April 9, 146 A.D. He becomes a member of the Roman Senate. He leads in a Roman legion. And in 193, after a kind of a civil war, or a battle with at least two more rivals, he becomes emperor of Rome. And he is Roman emperor from 193 to 211. There are many representations of him. The representations invariably show a man with curly hair, but with features that don't look that, in my opinion, predominantly African, although there is a wide diversity of what African people look like. But in 198 or 199, he goes back to Egypt. He goes back to Africa, I should say. He goes back to Libya, and he travels through Egypt as just essentially a tourist. And he's there with his family. And while he is there, he has a portrait done, the only known portrait that I'm aware of of Septimius Severus, and it clearly shows him as having rich brown skin. This painting is now on display in the Antiquities Museum in Berlin. I've seen it several times. I photographed it there. Among other things, he is a great builder. The most magnificent arch in the Roman form in Rome is that of Septimius Severus. In 211, he dies in York, England, York, England of all places, leading a military campaign. He is he uh, dies he, he dies from complications of gout. He is in turn followed by his two sons, a man named Geta or Gita G E T A, and Caracalla. Unfortunately, Caracalla murders Geta and becomes sole emperor of Rome. He in turn reigns for nine years, and he is assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. Septimius Severus is the last Roman emperor to die in bed of natural causes for nearly 100 years. And then he is, Caracalla is in turn followed, and there are many representations of Caracalla in the museums of the world. And then he in turn is followed by a man of Moorish extraction. He's specifically referred to as a Moor, somebody from um, Northwest Africa. His name is Macrinus. Then there's another fellow, and then he is in turn followed by the last representative of the <clears throat> Severan dynasty, and this is Alexander Severus, or Severus Alexander. And again, here's an imperial, here's a, an African dynasty at the height of imperial Rome that lasts for nearly 50 years. And this is not the only thing. You have African gladiators by the second century um, AD. More than one third of all the members of the Roman Senate were born in Africa. You have African artists, an African sculptor named Memnon, M-E-M-N-O-N. But what stands out to me the most is an African writer, a man named Terence Afar, A-F-E-R, sometimes called Terence and Niger. These are terms that were exclusively used for black people, African people in the Roman world. And Terence came up with two expressions which are still used every day and are very relevant. One where there is life, there is hope. Very, very profound and sounds to me quintessentially African. And he also gave us the expression, I am a man, and therefore nothing human is alien to me. Also very African. And that's why I repeat this expression again and again and again, that African history is everybody's history. And I think the words of Terence kind of summarize that. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Black liberates theology. The real God is me. Oh. 
off, break, break, breaking breads, rolling briefers. I pledge allegiance, my brothers keep us. I say my vows and take a vow. These nouns and vows create the sound of lovers. Thesis, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, teachers. About theology, for like ecology. My physiology is black, but not just black. It's my philosophy. Till my casket's in the grave. I amass knowledge yourself. I spell my African with K. I feel terrific, quite lifted. In this Anglo-Saxon wrapped in white privilege. Follow yourself or follow your wealth and swallow the shame. These crackers trying to segregate the college debates for fathers that hate, hate, hate. For mothers that discriminate. I got no hatred for these brothers that assimilate. Just disappointed. Racist pigs, rage your crib with pistols pointed. Go bake some cookies with your civil ass. Scary brothers, watch the upper break the middle class. Black theology and Massey's black sermons. Broken schools, private prisons, tax burdens Racist politicians that rape the power system Homicidal homophobics, but they call it Christian Defined as God, the blind as fraud, but they call it vision He caught with dope and now your mama got to call it prison You were talking about how you were able to find that picture of uh, Septimus Severus And just to let people know, uh, I, I've been on uh, several tours with Dr. Rashidi, and they are fascinating tours. And <laughs> we go to a lot of museums, and you do a great job of taking a picture really fast, <laughs> and it comes out being gorgeous. Um, and I, I just want to understand, how many museums around the world have you visited? Have you kept count of that yet? I haven't kept count, but one of the books that I'm working on will be um, – something to the effect, Images of the African in the Museums of the World. It's a book that I'm very excited about. I'm going to give myself at least another year to finish it. And in the process of that, I'm going to see if I can tabulate how many museums I've been to. But I've been to 118 countries now, and so I'm going to assume that I've been to at least two to 300 museums, perhaps more than that. You could call me right now the museum man. <laughs> Just in February alone, last month, I went to nine different museums in the United States. Wow. This week, I go to two more. Next week, another two. And then I take off for the U.K., and I'll visit the museums in Scotland and also um, revisit the museums in the U.K. I've been to most of the major museums in uh, England but this time I'm coming back with a better camera. And so <clears throat> it goes without saying that museums fascinate me, and I think that we can reconstruct the history of the entire African world through the artifacts in the museums alone. And right now it is my goal to visit every, every museum in the world with an African collection and to photograph them all. I know that sounds very, very ambitious, but I've already completed about 85% of that goal. No, I believe you could do it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> There's no doubt. All right, my brother. <laughs> I was wondering, out of those museums, which one would you say is your favorite to date? Well, it's hard to narrow it down. If we're talking about just Egypt, because Egypt is obviously very, very important to us, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, in Cairo has no peer. I mean, there's yeah. nothing even close. But in Europe, I'd have to say the British Museum has the most stuff. And then perhaps after that, the Louvre. But there are a lot of smaller museums that I really, really, really like. Now, let's be clear here. Museums are largely repositories of loot. Yeah. And they are, by their very nature, Eurocentric. The idea of putting things on display, even putting people on display, which denotes, I suppose, a, a kind of superiority and a sense of ownership is purely European. And as we both know, until recently, Europe could do whatever it wanted to do. Talking about the various countries in Europe, Europe ruled over the world, and they could more or less take whatever caught their fancy. And so there are dozens of museums in Europe that are absolutely fascinating. There are some museums in Europe that are just Egyptian museums. For example, there's a museum in Turin, Italy, the Museo Egizio, purely Egyptian. 
There are at least three, four Egyptian museums in Germany, and they have some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful pieces. And uh, I, I get very excited about it. Would you say, looking at some of your the pictures you take, is it hard to locate some of those artifacts, or, or, or is it in plain sight for everyone to kind of see? Sometimes they're in plain sight, but a lot of times it is very, very difficult to uh, track them down. And so there's, I'd say, three aspects to it. First, you identify the museum that you want to go to, and you hope and pray. You try to do a little research, <clears throat> and then you hope and pray that the artifacts that you most want to see are going to be on display. This is not all, always the case. Even if you do the research, even if you go to the website, there, there, are always, there always exists a possibility that certain galleries are going to be closed for renovation. There's always the possibility that some of the pieces that you most want to see are going to be on loan to another museum. Mm -hmm. um, but the two most exciting parts when you do strike gold, they're twofold. One is to see a piece or pieces that up to this point you've only seen in books. Mm -hmm. And you, you say to yourself, I finally found it. I finally, I'm finally seeing it myself for the first time. And then the other aspect, perhaps even more exciting, is to find a piece that you've never even seen in a book mm. that is what you would consider a completely new discovery. <laughs> and so for me, it's really, really exciting. People might think I'm crazy while they're listening to this, but I really, really get derive a great sense of satisfaction from those latter two. And then another frustrating part is sometimes, even if you find a piece, not being allowed to take photographs of it. Yeah. And that could be very frustrating. Or not being able to get a good photograph. Like if you find a painting that you are particularly drawn to, quite often because of the nature of pastel, you get a, a glare. Mm -hmm. And no matter what kind of camera you have or what kind of camera I might have, you still don't get the quality of the photograph that you uh, want. But right now you could call me the museum man, or it sounds predatory, or the museum hunter. But both of those <laughs> I wear with a, uh, a badge of pride. You you literally could start a show where you're just going around museums. I mean, I think I, I think it'll catch on. I think it would. <laughs> Mama so black. If anybody try to play the dozens like that, they need to be smacked. Even if it's the last joke in the lab factory, hit the well, actually send that shit back. Your mama so black. If anybody try to insult her like that, they lose. No matter how funny, guess what? Your big dummy thoughts are things and subconscious gets abused. Your mama so black, like the soil of the most fertile crescent, reflecting the essence. Your mama so black, she attract attention. Soon as she grates the room with her presence. Your mama so black, it's a blessing on a blessing, a reward or a penalty. The stress be stressing. Your mama so black, my suggestion is do not test unless you want that lesson. Your mama so black, she might smack the shit out of you for putting yourself in harm's way. Just so you associate the action with pain and know better than to try to dumb shit again. Your mama so black, she get a double whammy as a woman in the white man's world. Your mama so black, I should make you think twice before you disrespect your girl. Your mama so black, it don't crack, and your man so glad to have a woman like that. Your mama so black, as soon you love to say bitches ain't shit, it's kind of whack. Your mama so black, while brothers passing self-hate, white guys saying, hey girl, might as well swoop in, since so many black men fantasize about a blonde being a girl. A part that really fascinated me about the book was when you started talking about how there was a time uh, black women were worshipped and idolized around the world. Can, can you talk about that? Well, for me, it's still the case. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not just me. Not just me now, yeah. but we could talk, for example, about these images of God. I guess we could call them that. For example, in Asia, you could talk about images of Kali, mm -hmm. the black goddess of India. But I think a better example an example that more of us would be able to relate to are the black Madonnas of Europe. And not just Europe, but Europe in particular. The black Madonnas are modern-day depictions of the Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus. 
and they are probably rooted in the ancient adoration of Aset and Heru, or Isis and Horus, in ancient Egypt, the Nile Valley. And they are painted black. They are black icons or statues scattered all over Europe. There used to be a lot more. And because they are black, it is thought that they are able to perform miracles. They are the superstars of the cult of Mary. For example, there's one in Poland, a place called Jasnagor, the Jasnagor Monastery at Czestochowa, which is literally the queen of Poland, literally the queen of Poland. These, these icons, these statues are treated like living, breathing entities. The people who adore them change their clothes. They prostrate them, themselves before them. They crawl on their knees, licking each step of the uh, of the platforms that they are on with their tongues to get to the Madonnas and kiss their feet. And they are thought to perform miracles. There's a similar one in Switzerland. The most of them, the vast majority, are in France. Mm. And they were along the routes of the Crusades that led the Crusaders from Europe to what they considered the Holy Land. And I've seen about ten of them. I've seen them in Russia in Poland, in the Czech Republic, in Spain, in France, and a number of other countries as well. And they are absolutely fascinating. And they are several hundred years old in most cases. And the ones that we are looking at, even the ones that are several hundred years old, I'm sure are not the originals. The originals were probably destroyed over time. But because they were so important to the parishioners, to the worshipers, New ones would be created, and they would always retain their black skin. A lot of them were destroyed during the French Revolution because it was thought that they were associated with the power of the monarchy. So it's another really, really fascinating subject. You know, I, I was wondering, the, the people who do worship the black Madonnas, have you ever ever asked them uh, what is, why, why do they have a fascination do they even realize the skin color and the significance that is to maybe to all of us? Because, you know, some people might argue that the black Madonnas are not intentionally black because of erosion and so forth. But you said that these still could be not the originals and they still painted them black. Have you ever asked anyone how to uh, why are they black? How do they feel about them being black? Have you ever asked anybody that? Well, I do, but for the most part, I've stopped because I find the responses interesting but a bit ridiculous. For example, there's one in Luxembourg in the Church of St. John in a part of Luxembourg City called the Groom, G-R-U-N-D. And I've gotten a fierce argument with a guy who says that it has nothing to do with black people, none of that, that they use oak for the Madonna, and that's why it's black. Now, this is pitch black now. <laughs> I've never seen a pitch black oak tree, but I thought we were almost going to come to blows. Mm-hmm. And other people are very dismissive. If you ask, why are they black? The response you might get is, well, they're black because they are black. So they're very dismissive. <laughs> One time, the first two that I saw in Europe were in Russia, in Moscow, in the Kremlin. I went in the church, I went there in 1999, wow. and I saw two of them painted <clears throat> high up on a wall. I had to literally climb up a scaffold in a dark church to get <laughs> photographs. When I, but I did. I did. I was much more fit at that time. We won't go into that. And I climb up there, and I get the photographs, and a little Russian lady, I guess who worked in the church, who saw me, made it a point to come up to me, and in English which is no small feat in uh, Russia, she says, they weren't always black. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, they were white at one point, but the painter who painted them used bad paint, and they turned black. <laughs> so there is a kind of a denial in many, many ways, and I think that the people who worship these are able somehow to make a distinction between black as ethnic and black as symbolic. I think what they realize or what they see, and maybe they don't realize it, maybe they're not conscious of it, is the black mother of all of us that is deeply rooted 
in the psyche, in the psyche of Europeans, even if they don't understand it. We all come from the same mother. Mm-hmm. We all, whether we like it or not, black people, white people, brown people, yellow people, red people, all have an African mother in antiquity. And I think that people like you and me, we recognize that. We have no issue with that. Mm-hmm. But for many people who have been taught that Africa is the worst place in the world, they instinctively reject that. But in their deep, in, the, in their psyche, in their subconscious, they appreciate that they, in fact, have a black mother. And I think that that's what they see in these icons scattered throughout Europe. That's what I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that point, too. And I think it's it very funny, some of the explanations that you said that people gave you, because oh, yeah. even when they are oh, yeah. that color, their eyes are white. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, and the detail on these Madonnas, the colors are so intricate. There's no way that that was a mistake, you know? So it's just it's just funny how that happens. Well, one of, one of the things that I want to do at some point in time, and I need some hearty souls to go with me, I want to do a Black Madonna tour. And I want to do particularly a Black Madonna tour of South Central France. Because that's where you have the greatest concentration of black Madonnas in the world, even more so than in Africa, interestingly enough. Mm. So I'd like to take a small group there, and perhaps I will as recent as early as uh, as next year. Man, you know, you know that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Look in the eyes of my brother Without shedding a tear for my brother I really want to try for my brother Cause I truly do feel for my brother And since they lied to my brother I'll teach the truth to my brother hurt outwardly or self-inflict cowardly everyone wants to belong everybody deserves another i can't depend on others to take care of my own brother i was asked if i'm willing to die for my brother but i'd rather live for my brother and stand to build with my brother they plan to kill I think another part, since we're we're near France, right next, close to it is Spain, right? And you really talk about the uh, the extremely extensive and indelible contributions that the Moors have given to Europe. Uh, can you can you talk about who were the Moors and what were their contributions? Well, the word well the word Moor means black. It means scorched. It's a term that was given by Europeans to populations in Northwest Africa. It's a term that comes out of the 
Greco-Roman world. I believe the Arabs refer to these same people as Berbers. Now, apparently, there are different types of Berbers and maybe even different types of Moors. I'm not sure about that latter part. The first time we, that I know of, we hear about the Moors. They're fighting in the army of the great African general Hannibal. They're fighting against the Romans. Then when Hannibal's armies are defeated, they eventually fight in the Roman armies themselves. They are the cavalry contingents in Roman armies. One of them we know very well. This is during the reign of the Spanish Roman emperor Trajan. And then we find the Moors again fighting the Arabs as they invade Africa late in the 7th century. Eventually these people are defeated, the Moors, the Berbers, and they convert to Islam. And in 711 they are a major contingent that leaves Africa and goes into Spain and conquers much of Spain, parts of Portugal, and parts of southern France. They are finally defeated in 732 by a Frenchman named Charles Martel. He's the grandfather of Charlemagne. And the name Charles Martel means Charles the Hammer. The Moors reintroduced civilization into Spain after the fall of the Roman Empire. They advanced degrees of literacy, science, mathematics, even public hygiene. So the Moors, you know, various aspects of agriculture. It's been suggested that they introduce apples and oranges, Valencia oranges that we like to talk about from Florida are actually introduced, to my knowledge, by the Moors. They, they show Europeans that it's important to take a bath, that it's important to change clothes, to eat with utensils as opposed to eating with your hands. All of these basic innovations come from the Moors, and they dominate Spain, Portugal for several hundred years from 1411 until well after 1492. I say that because they surrender um, a man named... Um, God, his name escapes me now. But he surrenders to Ferdinand and Isabella in January, I think January 6th or January 2nd, 14, Boabdil is his name, Boabdil, B-O-A-B-D-I-L. He surrenders to Ferdinand and Isabella in the Alhambra in Granada in January 1492. But even at that point, many Moors remain in Spain. Over a period of time, the image of the Moor can be found all over Europe. I just found an image of a Moor in Budapest, Hungary, not long ago. Oh, wow. I had the picture. I took it in 2008. I just identified it again two days ago. Moors who become the uh, coat of arms or images of Moors scattered throughout England. A Moorish coat of arms among the aristocratic Pucci family in the European Renaissance in Florence. Moors scattered all over Germany, the most prominent of which is St. Maurice, who becomes patron saint of the Holy Roman Germanic Empire for hundreds of years. And so the Moors are in many ways like the people of Kemet, like the Africans in the Olmec world, like the black presence in the kingdoms of Southeast Asia. It's another profound chapter that needs to be fleshed out even more so that we understand the global impact of black people. The worst crime you can commit is to teach a child that their history began with slavery. And so we want to go back to the beginning. We want to look at Africa as the foundation of humanity and Africa as the birthplace of civilization. Only then will we have a true account of the history of African people and a true account of the history of the world. I mean, that is incredible. You bring up a great point. It's almost like when we were talking about Greek and Greek philosophy, how a lot of it, they went over into Egypt to learn that stuff. And when they went back, they were kind of ridiculed. It's almost the same thing when we were learning in school about the Renaissance in Europe, just all these scientific explosions out of nowhere. 
not realizing that they this what almost 800 years have been omitted you know and putting that puzzle back in there you start to realize aha this is how this happens you know and uh, well, you bring up two excellent points you bring up greek philosophy you bring up the renaissance but another important area that needs to be looked at more is the impact of African people on the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Napoleon goes to Egypt, another Frenchman, actually a Corsican, who's head of the French army, goes to Egypt in 1798, and he brings with him all these scientists and, and artists and what have you. Napoleon is, leads one of a series of invasions of Kemet. This is one of the more recent ones, and these guys are able to see the impact that ancient Egypt had on European society and, and the evolution of Europe. And so I would like to see a study done that measures the impact that Africa, particularly this Napoleonic expedition or invasion of Egypt, had on the development of the Industrial Revolution. Nobody has really done that work, and there are many areas of research in terms of the African presence in Europe that are just begging for further elucidation. Mm, wow. Yeah, that definitely will be interesting to learn about. We'll be right back. had a part in the book that was very interesting to me, how you talked about Africa's early presence and cultural influence in the British Owls in early Northern Europe. Can, can you talk about that? I found that fascinating. Well, it has to be, wow, 20 years ago, even beyond that, closer to 25 years ago now that a man named William Preston got in touch with me. At the time, I was working at Compton Community College organizing what were called cultural awareness programs. And I had begun to write for the great Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, Journal of African Civilization. And um, I did some work on various subjects, and this man wanted to use uh, some of my photographs. So... He's an older man. I never heard of him. So he invited me over to his office, and it was astounding. Um, this is in Los Angeles, and we talked and talked and talked. And among other things, he showed me an old book called Ancient and Modern Britons by an Englishman, a, Scot a Scotsman named David McRitchie. And I'd never heard of this book before. It was published in the mid-1880s, I think 1886. And McRitchie talked about the presence of black people, various groups of black people in the British Isles. I was blown away. Never seen anything like it. He talked about black people in Welsh folk tales, a Welsh uh, tradition. I learned for the first time about Africans, I think it was the first time, in the traditions of Ireland and Scotland, Moors in England. I'd never seen anything like it. And so... I was influential in having this book reprinted, and so I did a review of it 
for Ivan Van Sertema, I think, in 1986, a book that was originally called The African, in fact, it's still called The African Presence in Early Europe. And I kind of followed up on that. I haven't done extensive research on it, but certainly I wanted to know who this McGritchie character was and why he would devote so much time to this particular subject. And it just, again, kind of tells us that there are certain areas in African studies, in this case, even the African presence in early Europe, that are just ripe for people to grab with both hands and, and exhaust it from a research perspective. Uh, I kind of think that the majority of the history of the African world is yet to be written, yeah. and it's up to us to write it. It's the major. It's the responsibility of black people to know our history and to tell that history, not stammer, not whisper, not stutter, but say it with pride and dignity because we have the greatest story that's barely been told, and it's up to us to tell it. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Out of Out of all of the figures in the book, African figures in the book, which one would you say is your favorite and why? Well, I could narrow it down to three or four. I'll tell you my favorite, but I also have to give honorable mention to the other three or four as well. Clearly, the man who stands out above everybody else is Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin. Pushkin has been called the father of Russian literature. He is a Russian with a prominent African ancestor, a man named Ibrahim Hannibal. Pushkin, I wouldn't say he invented the Russian language. That wouldn't be true. But he popularized Russian literature. He wrote in Russian at a time when most Russians, Russian intellectuals are writing in French. He lived from 1799 to 1837 when he was killed as a result of wounds inflicted upon him in a duel defending his wife's honor. It is said that he had a vocabulary of 20,000 words. He is the Russian equivalent to Shakespeare, and he was very, very proud of his African ancestry. So Pushkin stands out head and shoulders to me. He is like a saint, a personal saint that I call on for protection and guidance and strength and prosperity and wisdom. And then he is closely followed by a person who may be as much myth as fact, and that is St. Maurice. Mm. I think I talked about St. Maurice. He is the, he's born in Egypt about 1,700 years ago. He, he becomes the commander of what is called the Theban Legion in the Roman army. He is martyred for his faith. A cult of St. Maurice develops in northern and eastern Europe that can still be found today. And then Septimius Severus, the African-born emperor of Rome, is number three on the list, closely followed by Alexander Dumas-Père. Alexander Dumas-Père, whose grandmother on his father's side was Haitian, a black woman from Haiti, of course, is the person who wrote the Count of Monte Cristo, the man in the iron mask, the three musketeers. She gave us the expression, one for all, all for one. Your work may be finished, but your education is never completed. And he says that a man's mind is elevated to the status of the women with whom he associates. Hmm. So uh, Pushkin is the top of the list, but those other three brothers are pretty heavyweight also. Wow. So from all the groundbreaking research, what surprised you the most? I don't know if anything quite surprises me anymore because I'm constantly uh, – coming across new things. You know, I travel. It's very important for me these days to go and see these things for myself. I was just in Europe uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago, and I started this particular trip in Estonia. I went to Tallinn. That made 118 countries that I visited, and I went there specifically to photograph the House of the Brotherhood of the Blackheads. This was a medieval merchant's guild um, of unmarried merchants, and they have, and there's a, a house of the blackheads in Riga, in Latvia, and a house of the blackheads in Tallinn and Estonia. And the patron of the house of the blackheads was none other than St. Maurice himself. So I went there to photograph it, 
and then all these images of Africans in the European museums. Of course, there are many Africans in Europe today. Africans, Africa has been <clears throat> so raped and robbed and pillaged that many sisters and brothers from Africa are leaving Africa, going to Europe in search of what they perceive as a better way of life. So we could use the expression, I suppose, Africa and Europe, the Alpha and the Omega, that you have Africans at the beginning of Europe. The first people who settled Europe were African people. And then you have African people continuing into Europe today. So history is the movements of people, and those movements apparently never stop. Yeah, I think the work you're doing is is extraordinary. I think something that strikes me is, you know, they're starting to really put out there that, you know, uh, the African is the the birth of humanity. It's where we yeah. all started. And then from there, we had to branch out, right? So when we branched out, what did we do in those other countries? That doesn't get talked about. Yeah. It's, and I like how you're starting to make that connection for us. And uh, we, we truly appreciate that. So, so lastly, what do you want the reader to mainly take away from this book more than anything? That we have a glorious history, a vast history, that we know a lot about it, but there's so much more to know. I'd like to see more researchers uh, pursuing it, especially more young people, that history is very, very important. And history is not just dry dates and facts, but it's life. Mm -hmm. No, history is the story of a people, and we want the entire story. We don't want just parts of it. We want the full story. And I would just like to encourage more people to do the research, to flesh it out, and shout to the world who we are and what we are, what we're capable of doing, that our history does not start with slavery. And as I've said a few times in the course of this interview, that African history is everybody's history including the history of Europe. Yeah. So before we finish, I, I, I just want to kind of talk about how people can join you on your hunt for the African presence around the world. <laughs> I, I don't want you, – you have some really great tours, so I just wanted you to kind of let us know how, how can we yeah, I join have, I do have a, a number of tours. I do group tours every year. Uh, this year, not in Europe, but I have an Olmec tour. The Olmec are the first – Civilizers of the Western Hemisphere. I have an OMEG tour in uh, uh, July, August. I'm taking a group to Cuba, you know, in June, July. Wow. Uh, next year I'll take a group to Europe. I'm sure that I'll be doing a, a trip to Egypt and Sudan. I do lots of lectures. I have new books coming out all the time. So anyone can get in touch with me. You can email me at Renoco at hotmail.com, or Noko is spelled R-U-N-O-K-O at hotmail.com. You can go to my website, which is drrenoko.com, D-R-R-U-N-O-K-O.com, or you can simply give me a call at area code 323-803-8663. That's 323-803-8663, and I'd be delighted to continue this conversation. Now, Renoko, you can't forget about Facebook. You're the pharaoh of Facebook now. <laughs> so I would. Yeah, I have a, a very visible on uh, social media. Mm -hmm. One of the people that I admire the most historically is a historian named J. A. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And Rogers, I think even now, did the best work on illuminating the African presence in early Europe. Um, Rogers wrote for the masses of people. He didn't just write for academicians and intellectuals, but he, his work was widely disseminated in what is called the Negro press. Well, now I think the closest thing that we have to that today is Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time on Facebook, and if you just go to Facebook and log in Renoco, my name is going to pop up all over the place. Yeah, and I highly suggest people follow you because you have some extraordinary firsthand pictures. Um, and uh, it, it just just seeing images of us around the world is very um, uh, lifts, definitely lifts, lifts the spirit. So I, I would highly suggest people follow. Um, so, Dr. Renoko, I would just want to say thank you so much for this interview. And I look forward to doing uh, more of these with you. 
Well, I want to thank you. You know, I, I get lots of requests for interviews, and most of them I just ignore. Uh, but this one I really, really enjoyed. You pulled the best out of me, and I have to say that this is one of the best interviews, one of the most enjoyable and comprehensive interviews I've been a part of. Oh, wow, so thank you. you for the invite, and again, uh, I look forward to doing a lot more. Okay, th- thank you so much. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we will then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.